Welcome back to the Mediocre Movie Club podcast. I'm John Kissel. With me tonight is J.R. Peters. Hello. Here at the Mediocre Movie Club, we're a group of friends who, every month, select three movies more or less on a theme, sometimes totally random, sometimes not, and we write about said movies on our website, mediocremovie.club, and then at the end of the month, after all the reviews have been written, we get together on this podcast to discuss them. This last month, we uh, selected a theme of Guillermo del Toro movies in honor of his latest release, uh, Pinocchio, the second Pinocchio movie to come out this year, strangely. And uh, we paired that movie quite appropriately, I think, based on uh, our impending discussion with The Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, we're going to talk about The Shape of Water. Well, first, let's just very briefly talk about Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro, where he lands for you in like a director hierarchy, J.R., I gotta say, pretty high. I enjoy all of his movies. I don't think he makes a bad movie. But I'm not sure any of them have real, a lot of replay value for me anymore. Mm-hmm. So, rewatching Pan's Labyrinth and rewatching part of The Shave of Water for this, I'm lower on him on rewatches, but every time I watch for the first time, I'm like, this dude's great. So. I don't know. He he doesn't go up there with like. Den, is it Dennis Villanueva, who like Villeneuve? yeah, Denny Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Yeah, anything this dude makes, I could watch it a thousand times, right? But uh, I still think he's making great movies. He's still making well, for the most part, he's making great movies. <laughs> okay, I'm, yeah, we're I'm gonna, gonna trash Pinocchio when we get there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, for that. Uh, I think that is kind of the common knock on him. He doesn't make bad movies, but he doesn't necessarily make great movies either. His movies are um, certainly uh, his own. Uh, you can tell a Guillermo del Toro movie. Uh, he has uh, certain he has he has actors that he uses a lot. He has themes he reuses a lot. He's known for his creature design, uh, even though not all of his movies need creature design. Uh, most recently, like Nightmare Alley, which is just like a straightforward. Uh, like mid-century film noir remake of another film noir, but I mean, no, you know, no monsters in that. Um, no, no character monsters. In sure, that. yes, no, <laughs> no demons or whatever yeah. or creatures, that kind of stuff. Yeah, of his contemporaries, like he and Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaritu, I think is his full yep. name, and then Alfonso Cuarón. Like Cuarón is, I think, clearly the most talented of those three Mexican directors of a similar age. Uh, but I would put Del Toro like second in their cohort. I, I like their, I like their like camaraderie. They always like thank each other at the, in the end credits of their movies. So I just like to imagine they're all like bouncing ideas off of each other and they all bring extremely different perspectives uh, to their movies. They're all interested in different things, but I just like that they're good buddies. Uh, it's, Del Toro occupies like a, a valuable place in cinema as as like a as like a joyful guy who loves movies and uh, freely offers up his opinions about movies. Usually only if they're like glowing and he like single out people and shower praise on them. And I like that's that's the kind of stuff that has made like Scorsese like a like a timeless figure who will be cherished forever by anybody who loves movies. On top of like you know the great movies he makes, but. But as far as, like, yeah, his actual filmography, there is some great stuff in there, but uh, he's, he's he's never made, like, the full A masterpiece movie. 
He's made his masterpiece, which I think we'll probably we might agree on, and maybe we'll talk about it. But uh, I wouldn't say he's made a masterpiece in comparison to someone like Quaron, who has maybe like who has arguably like made three or four masterpieces. Yeah. Uh, so respectable director, but kind of on the outside looking in as far as like the top tier in his like age cohort. Uh, he was most greatly feted for his work in The Shape of Water. This is a 2017 movie, the Best Picture winner for that year. Uh, this is a movie about, that takes a lot from uh, those like universal horror movies, Creature from the Black Lagoon most specifically. He's talked about his love for that kind of stuff. Kennedy era, right before the 60s, everybody's still wearing Mad Men suits, set in Baltimore. A government lab finds a sea creature, a mute maid falls in love with said sea creature and tries to rescue it from vivisection at the hands of Michael Shannon. Uh, initial thoughts, Shape of Water, JR? Um, so the, I think The Shape of Water is a good movie. That Did it deserve Best Picture? We'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very good movie. Uh, like I said, I think a, upon second rewatch, you're just kind of like, I'm less on it, right? So, like, maybe the first time I watched it, I was like, this is like an A-minus movie probably for me. Um, and then I, this, this would have been, if I would have watched the whole thing this time, it would have been the third time I saw this movie. Um, second time I watched it, I liked it a little less. And then I got about 40 minutes in this time and not, did, I had other stuff I had to do, so I didn't finish it. Totally fair. But, um, but yeah, I 40 minutes in, I was even less, you know, just kind of like, I think this may be us just like more of a symptom of Guillermo del Toro's movies than the fact that it's bad. I think he, I think I like a lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies because you're really like, what's what's next, right? You keep seeing these, he's got all these creatures and you're always infatuated with these creatures and he keeps doing everything like that. And, uh, but then you watch it a second time and you're just kind of like, I, I, yeah, I saw this once and I don't really know if I needed to watch it again. Uh, this I did see this in theaters in 2017, and then this is the first time I've rewatched it. Uh, I liked it well enough at the time. Uh, I wrote the review I posted at, uh, for this latest round uh, at the MediaCommunity.club website. I just reposted from my 2017 review, probably 2018 because I write so slowly. Uh, as far as my review cue, review queue at the moment is concerned, it's April of 2021. <laughs> so uh, I'm, re I'm really falling behind. I got to step that shit up or just say fuck it and bang out like 51 sentence reviews here nor there. The review I wrote in 2017 is more or less unchanged, uh, pretty much exactly unchanged. I'm fascinated by some parts of this movie uh, and other parts. Del Toro just can't get out of his way. He just doesn't have a huge quality control impulse. There is truly like great stuff in this movie. I think uh, as, as like leaden as it potentially could be, especially around the Michael Shannon character who I, who as far as the agenda is concerned, I wrote like six bullet points on. There's just so much uh, going on with that guy, but so other stuff just needs to be polished. 
or cut out completely and uh, like the total package is just messy which I think is an asset in some cases but like an imperfect movie can you know occasionally resonate more than than something that's just like like I keep coming I keep thinking about like when we talked about there will be blood it's this it's this epic movie and we talked about it for like 10 minutes just because it's all in the experience there isn't there truly isn't that much there, and I don't say that negatively. It's fine that it's not too complicated. I mean, it's great that it's not too complicated. Uh, whereas, like, the messiness in The Shape of Water doesn't elevate it at all. It, it just kind of drags it down. As far as, like, it winning Best Picture, I think this is just one... And this is the case every, every year where there's, you know, some movie in the 10 or in the 5, if you go back before 2009, that... Uh, just has the legacy to where when people look back, they're like, why? Why did that win exactly? Uh, like, if Shawshank Redemption had won in 94 as opposed to Forrest Gump, like, that would have seemed nonsensical at the time because that wasn't a successful movie. But, like, in retrospect, that would be a far more acceptable decision than Forrest Gump. But just, like, time has, like, whitewashed that movie's reputation. I don't say that negatively. Shawshank's a good movie. But uh, even in 2017, this definitely seemed like a safe choice as opposed to more daring, and which is always the case with the Oscars. Like they always pick the safer choice. And I say safer choice despite this being a movie about a woman who has sex with like a – it's about bestiality. It's a, it's a bestiality love story. Uh, but it nevertheless is extremely reverent of movies in general. There's a lot of uh, callbacks to earlier movies, uh, both stylistically and within the plot itself. And anytime you can just flatter movie lovers, I think, of a certain age, you just get that extra boost. But the, the stuff it beat out, especially in 2017, uh, the movies, like the second place, third place, whatever movies, their reputations have only increased since 2017 and it just makes their loss uh stand out that much more i'm talking about movies like get out get out was probably the right choice for posterity's sake even though i prefer Lady Bird, which was also nominated for best picture and then you also have dunkirk and uh phantom thread i think are the other like credible uh credible movies that that might have won against the shape of water which again just like has little to no legacy Whereas all four of those movies, uh, and I would also include Call Me By Your Name, even though I'm even though I think that movie's just fine instead of great, but people do love Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, that I mean, a crazy win, but Get Out know. was just named as one of the top 100 movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. Like. and I think I think if you rolled the dice again, I think Get Out would probably win. Like if you did the five year Oscars and had the same people vote again. Yeah, for I, sure. I, yeah, I think like Get Out just seems like the correct choice. But, Clearly the better movie, in yeah. my opinion. And that isn't to say that The Shape of Water is bad. Like, when we did Dances with Wolves several years ago, like, I hadn't seen, I'd seen that movie several times as, like, a teenager or, or like, a young 20-something. Just because it, that was a time when people had cable and Dances with Wolves is off and on. Dances with Wolves is not a bad movie. <laughs> I was surprised to remind myself of that after not having thought about it really in, like, 10 years or so. 
and then whenever we were watch when we we watched it for you know the podcast uh it's good dances with wolves is a good movie it's nowhere near as condescending as it could be as in the way those kind of like culture clash uh movies so often are and i haven't seen avatar yet but i mean come on how could it not be that's 100 percent what i expect from the avatar sequel uh it's just good but just goodfellas is an all-timer so it makes dances with wolves worse by comparison uh i don't know i i i've i've gotten over any kind of oscar frustration i don't know it just all went away i think when uh when I witnessed like just like the King's speech winning over social network, like, okay, if you're going to make it just an obscene decision like that, then you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, does that kind of Oscar stuff still bother you, JR? I'm, I'm over it. I, okay. Yeah. Good like, for you. When I started paying attention. So 2010, probably mm. uh, it would bother me for a while, but then it was just like that you start paying attention and then you go and you see that like, like do the right thing what didn't sure, even get yeah. nominated There's, they get it right like once every five years and then it's fun to speculate but yeah it's not that big a deal uh shape of water like we'll talk about again like these three movies that we that we picked they all go together pretty well uh but like Guillermo del toro he loves these twisted dark fairy tales uh you know here like we said it's a love story about uh, bestiality but like if you drill down it's a it's a lowly maid who finds her prince charming except you know that it's a i mean if this was a video i would be doing the the penis reveal <laughs> hand motions that sally hawkins character does right now like that's just not a part of cinderella uh just like these kind of stories originally were probably you know, horrifying. I've never read like original Hans Christian Andersen or whatever, but like, I feel like the little mermaid is about her legs getting chopped off yeah. and then she has to murder somebody. I can't remember exactly. They're always just crazy. Horrifying. To what you Absolutely remember. horrifying. <laughs> and then, you know, people our age, younger, older, I mean, Disney's been a thing for almost a hundred years, if not a hundred years. They just, they unsanitize it, and then that becomes the story. And part of, like, Guillermo del Toro's storytelling mission is to unsanitize the sanitized. I'm sure, I mean, this is, like I said, a lot of Creature from the Black Lagoon, but it wouldn't shock me at all if he, like, did some kind of research into some weird Nordic fairy tale that uh, Viking descendants told their children, you know, when the sun went down at 5, 5 p.m. or 3 p.m. or whatever, and... This is some version of that. Uh, it, it's 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 a good niche for him to occupy. Uh, like like we mentioned that he never he ha he doesn't make the A movie necessarily, but just like he's found a place in movie making that if he can get the money for it, there's just like endless amounts of these horrifying fairy tales that he can dress up and bring back to people. I'd be really interested to see him try to do an Alfonso Cuarón movie. Or an Inaritu movie. Like, where it's, like, real-life stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, base this in some real life, do whatever. Obviously doesn't have to be the most real life. I mean, we got Birdman, where Inaritu made Birdman, where the dude jumps out of the building at the end, and mm -hmm. his daughter's looking at him fly away. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> man, whatever. 
I mean, you know what I mean? And freaking <laughs> yeah. The Revenant, where this dude survives a bear killing him. Like, it doesn't have to be the most real. But we're, like, move it out of some fairy tale land where literally every one of these movies, except for Nightmare Alley and Crimson Peak, right, exist. I mean, that's... And even I, Crim- I think the ghost is real in Crimson Peak, right? Like, that is... Oh, yeah, you're right. That, yeah, so, so I, I, I do think it's Nightmare Alley. So Nightmare Alley, yeah. But even that movie is about, like, con artists and, like, circus people. So he, he can't get away from, like, that kind of wonder, which is just not... In Yara 2, I think is kind of... Like, the, a critic I like, I had and I have followed since, like, the late 2000s, Scott Tobias, he used to work for the AV Club and the Dissolve. He has, like, a... Uh, intense hatred of Inyari 2 and anytime he comes up uh, in like a podcast just like the hatred coming out of the headphones is apparent and he's really convinced me over the years that that guy is just a complete hack who doesn't know <laughs> who doesn't know how to make a good movie at all in a Ritu? Uh, in your Ritu? yes like he's he's so melodramatic and and uh pretentious and like he puts the in like he put the critic character into birdman and that's just like m night Shyamalan did the same thing in like lady in the water like anytime a director is putting like straw man critic characters into a movie that's the moment when like critics are and critics know that they have found a director who reads their own reviews and takes them way too personally and i think of inyara too as someone like that uh, like he he has a new movie on Netflix, Bardo. I'm not gonna watch that shit. It's like an autobiographical uh, Fantasia story. I just can't imagine anything more difficult to get through than like a three hour Inyari two exercise in navel gazing. Coron, awesome. Inyari two, trash. <laughs> you could probably tell this is gonna be a terrible movie to watch just based off the name. Bardo, Bardo yeah. false chronicle of a handful of truths. Yeah, like, I mean, like Birdman has that terrible subtitle too. Yeah, the virtue of of ignorance or something like that. And like, shut yeah. the fuck up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he can put together a set piece really well, and he can make your he can make a movie look like it's a single take, pretty skillfully, and he can get a good performance here or there. But just like the the diamond at the center of his movies is just such trash. Yeah, I mean, anyways, Alfonso Cuarón is amazing for sure we agree with yeah hasn't put a step wrong love everything that guy does yeah even harry potter you're like this is yeah like (laughs) that's by far the consensus is like this is the best one because it had like a real director who only you know cashed a paycheck but brought his like technical abilities to this movie and he and he turned that into like children of men which is a straight up masterpiece yep anyways uh yeah those these I, this Mexican trio of directors, I just love that they exist in our friends, like I said, because they're just so different. I don't know what they would talk about. Like, Del Toro was going on about some kind of, like, dream he had about a demon with six arms, and Inyari 2 is saying some banal Instagram bullshit about the meaning of life, and I don't know what, Kron is just watching. <laughs> like, Batteries, like, going... Guys, he's going on about socialism or something, you know? He's yeah, like, sure, exactly. <laughs> he's like, hey, Do you know how many poor people exist while 
Elon Musk just bought Twitter for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, back to the shape of water. Um, totally forgot that's what we were talking about. To- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sally Hawkins in the lead. Uh, we, we're getting a lot of like sign language movies lately. And I mean, obviously this certain, this part of it didn't start a trend or anything, but just like any time, and I'm like, maybe I'm conditioned, I'm conditioned to this after like Sound of Metal and Coda and uh, other movies that I'm probably not remembering right now. But anytime a character is doing like really emphatic signing and like slapping their hands together and like ju- just communicating the force of what they're saying, even though, you know, they're, they're speaking through their hands. I love that shit. Uh, that it's it's extremely cinematic, uh, but as far as her character, and I know you didn't rewatch this recently, Jr. But like, what is her deal exactly? And this is going to come up in Pan's Labyrinth again. Like the distinction between a story being a heightened story being told in the real world and actual magic existing in the world. It's going to be my least favorite part of Pan's Labyrinth, and it's my one of my least favorite parts here. Like. The creature is revealed to actually be magic. He's not just like this amphibian man who, you know, lives in the Amazon and is worshipped as a god by the locals. Like, he actually has healing abilities. And then by the end, Sally Hawkins' character, who has these, like, claw marks on her neck that she doesn't know where they came from, he turns them into gills and heals her and they swim off into the Chesapeake Bay, probably back down to South America. What's, what's, was she, was she another amphibian god the whole time? And like her gills healed up or like sealed up somehow and stopped working? What's actually happening at the end of Shape of Water? Maybe she's dead. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is the same ending as Birdman. Like obviously Birdman dies when he jumps out, right? Maybe mm-hmm. she's dead. I don't know. I have no idea. I think Birdman is so full of shit that maybe he did fly away at the end. Maybe he was <laughs> the whole time. Maybe he was actually Birdman. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, I mean, you could say the same thing here though. Like this place literally exists in real life but doesn't like you're saying, but mm-hmm. it's just whatever it's whatever. And I think knowing Guillermo del Toro, it, it this happened. If you look at the rest of his movies, this happened. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, we'll definitely talk about this again with pan's labyrinth. Uh, I, I just, I don't like that. And I, that this is just who I am. I just, I don't like movies where that give themselves an out for magic to not actually exist. Like cryptozoology is one thing. Actual magic is another thing. And I'll, I'll accept the cryptozoology. That's what your movie is premised on. It doesn't have to be magic. That's just not interesting to me. That that That's obliterating stakes. This creature is wondrous enough in its existence. It doesn't need to have magical healing abilities or magical hair regrowing abilities. Like he... He makes Richard Jenkins' hair start to grow back after being bald. Whatever. Uh, An early character detail on Sally Hawkins, too, that I want to mention, in comparison to another potentially poorly justified uh, best best picture winner in American Beauty, both of these movies begin 
with characters jerking off in the morning as part of their routine. But I just find it interesting. And if we have nothing else to say about this, that's fine. I just think it's so interesting that when a guy that's part of a man's routine, it's like pathetic, but it's empowering that Sally Hawkins does it. I just find that extremely interesting. I was just very confused as to why it was there. It's to demonstrate that she's like a sexual being who, you know, is like this disabled person, but like, it's just her voice that's disabled. Everything else works fine. Eh, I mean, okay. Sure, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I guess if that's how you decided to do it. Not the fact that she's going to have sex later or the fact that she's, like, clearly seducing this guy over time. Like, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, she, she's bringing this guy eggs, and she starts bringing him fucking food and playing music for the guy. It's like, clearly something's happening here. You don't have to show me that she's a sexual being by making her masturbate 22 seconds into the movie. <laughs> But yeah, like, whatever. immediately announcing itself as, uh, I mean, I'm sure some people take their parents to see all kinds of movies, but not mine. <laughs> like, I would I just, yeah, exa- for, for exactly this reason, like from the opening. Uh, nope, definitely not. Definitely not going to happen. I'm not saying it's I'm saying like it was nothing. I was like, why was that there? It's not like it ruined anything. It was just like. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I, yeah, I certainly don't think that. Just like the comparison, like if she was a male character who like starts her day by jerking off, you would take a totally different read of her or of the of that main character. Than, yeah, uh, I guess old. maybe if it started off with a ma- uh, male character, you'd be like, "Is this dude? Is this they like showing me this guy's like a psychopath or something?" Like, I don't exactly. know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, back to stuff that I don't, I don't, I don't feel works as well. Uh, the Richard Jenkins and the Octavia Spencer characters, both of whom were nominated for supporting act for supporting Oscars. I don't think either of them work very well. I think Jenkins, like he's given the narration for some reason in a movie that like most movies that are narrated doesn't need it. Like his arc is, you know, cowardice to courage, but uh, I don't know. It's just like one thing too many, I think, for the for the movie where where he's just this like sweaty, closeted guy who uh, has no self-confidence. Uh, the movie's not about him. I don't know. I just don't give a fuck about his character. And like Octavia Spencer, who like, you know, experienced her greatest success in The Help as a made sidekick character, won the Oscar. And then six years later, here's another. She's still playing maid sidekick characters. It's just depressing. Bad to be black. <laughs> yeah, and like, and the movie doesn't really have room for her character either. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't matter as far as this plot goes. She's just there to say quippy things to around people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, recurring segment. For these three movies, uh, Guillermo del Toro's fascist bad guys. Uh, the version that that takes here is Michael Shannon as like a I need to make the trains run on time kind of guy. Results at all costs. No consideration for any kind of 
uh, feeling of empathy or or goodness or anything like that. Uh, and it's not like uh, he's taking great pleasure in, you know, his like 2.5 children and his picket fence and his car. Uh, the fruits of success don't matter as much as the fact that I appear successful. That's the most important thing. It's just it's, it's this very small person who uh, is living like a dead life as embodied by like the extremely leaden metaphor of his fingers rotting on his hand, which is like a fun opportunity for body horror, which I always appreciate. But as far as like a, a, a writing tool, I mean, yeah, come on. <laughs> of all the Oscars this movie won, it, it was nominated for, but did not win Best Screenplay. Uh, and I got to think, maybe, you know, tighten your metaphors up a little bit, and maybe it would have it competed a little more. I, I love Michael Shannon in everything he does. I, he, he is a kind of a one-note actor. He kind of plays the same guy over and over again because that's just who the guy is. Like, he puts off this extremely... And if you, like, read or listen to interviews with him, He's kind of also that guy, just very blunt, no bullshit guy. And uh, he does that. He's just the he's he's the kind of an actor who does it so well. that I don't really care that a lot of times he's playing variations on it, like slight variations on a theme. And here he's just leaning all the way into it. Have you ever seen a premium rush, Jr.? I have not. OK, I heard he's like a, he, he is as dialed up as he could possibly be in that movie. I haven't seen it either. He's in Bullet Train 2? Yes. Yes, he is. Yes. I don't remember him. I mean, yeah, I think that's fair. A lot, probably too much, happens in that movie. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. It's in- entertaining. Entertaining, movie. yes, entertaining. I think Del Toro is after the creature, who is, all, I mean, the creatures are always his, like, primary interest. Here, played by Doug Jones, who frequently... Uh, portrays the creatures in Del Toro movies. He was Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies. He's the Fawn and the Pale Man in Pan's Labyrinth, and I'm sure there are others. Uh, But his second interest is, you know, the quote-unquote monster in the movie with Shannon, uh, Shannon's character. There's just all kinds, there's all kinds of, like, weird idiosyncratic stuff revolving, uh, like, around this character. Like, subtle or no, it doesn't really matter. It's just really building out the antagonist of the film. Like uh, the early scene where he's having sex with his wife and he like puts his hand over her face and it's his hand with the dismembered figure fingers. And it's this early sixties. So she can't really complain or stop him. And it's like horrifying. She, she complains first. Barely. She's like, Hey, your hand is bleeding. And then he, pr- after she, he's just, Touching her face with it, she's like, "Your fingers are bleeding." And then he puts his hand over her mouth and is like, "Stop talking! I don't want to hear you." It's it's <laughs> yeah, skin crawling. Uh, the stuff with his hand washing is so so strange and so appropriate for his character. Like he washes his hands before he pees, never after. And there's just I I wrote I wrote like four or five sentences in my review just about that and how it like embodies his worldview. Like the world is bad. I'm good. The world makes me dirty. I could not possibly make the world dirty. So why would I wash my hands after touching my body? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You said it's a sign of weakness. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, like the standing at the urinal with his hands on his hips. <laughs> Just like a quick shorthand for uh, this guy could give a fuck. <laughs> Just moving through the world, uh, feeling like he's in complete control. And then we see like how that is a lie as well. Uh, not only in just like the smallness of his life and the just deep pathetic nature of a guy like that, but once he loses the creature, the general or the whoever's in charge of him, played by Nick Cersei, uh, has has ex- shows him exactly as much care as he is showing everyone. We're like, I don't give a shit about your record. I don't care how long you're you've been with us. If you fuck up on this scale you 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 cease to matter and like that is a uh, is like an idea that keeps coming up in in del toro movies where like there's for for the bad guys for the antagonists there's just no such thing as worth uh once your usefulness has or once you've ceased to be useful and like placing shannon as like a cog in a giant machine uh, is also appropriate for Guillermo del Toro's vision of fascism. So yeah, uh, Shannon's character, kind of the most interesting part of this movie, in spite of it. Like, if anybody else played this role, I feel like I would be more uh, bothered by how, you know, like, cliched and leaden a lot of the writing around it is. But because it's Shannon, I'll, I'll let it go. I'm perfectly fine with it. I think that's how all of the writing around these fascist bad guys is in Guillermo del Toro movies. Yeah, like there's not necessarily to them. Yeah, they're they're (laughs) there so that the other person can exist outside of that and try to live a lot. Like every other person's thing is, oh, the world's fascist. I'm going to not be fascist. I'm going to exist in this creative space or whatever is anti-fascism. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they're just like, we, he's like, I just need bad guys. Don't, we don't really care about them. We don't want to hear, hear about their internal machinations or anything like that. Any machinations. They're just like, these guys are pieces of shit is what he wants you to get. from. I don't know. I think like, um, like in inglorious bastards, you know, no, no, no. I'm saying, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, yeah, but like, um, I'll I'll work my way back to it. Like in okay, Inglorious okay. Bastards, Tarantino, uh, he's talked about how in like the world of his movie, like the greatest sin of the Nazis is that they're bad filmmakers. <laughs> like they go to the they go to the theater at the end, and everyone's watching this movie about. Um, Zoller's sniper exploits and the movie's bad. The movie is just him and us, him and you know, this bird's nest taking out allied soldiers, but everyone's eating it up like, Oh gosh, this is such a good movie. But as far as Tarantino is concerned, it's like repetitive trash that is about nothing. And then all of them get, you know, annihilated for applauding this bad movie. And I kind of think that, Factor that factor like Del Toro because he makes so many movies where the fascists are the bad guys. I I think he's thought about like what it means to be a fascist, and for someone like him who loves movies, 
who loves imagination and creation and like creature design and production design and all this artistic stuff, like the worst part of being a fascist is that part of your brain is totally dead. And you don't view the world from a state of wonder. You view the world from a state of domination. Like not how can I uh, admire this beautiful thing? How can I make it work for me? To further, you know, like the grand uh, ambitions of the race or the state or whatever. And like that's for someone like Del Toro or someone like Tarantino. Just this... It makes you an alien like that just just to view the world through that through such a utilitarian way. And they have no way <laughs> they they have to work hard to, like, imagine what that would even be like, because it's so antithetical to who they are. And I think that's a pretty decent way to view fascists. Like, you know, you can get you can get to a lot of places. But like, I don't know, like, look at. Look at uh, like Kirk Cameron movies, <laughs> like they're bad. <laughs> they're just bad on every level uh, because he has no vision of, you know, art that doesn't explicitly, you know, ratify his dis- distorted worldview. Yeah, which makes sense because Guillermo del Toro is also anti, very outspokenly anti any establishment setup. Yeah. Yeah. So that that does make sense, yeah. He's yeah. anti church, anti as he said himself, any establishment, it doesn't matter what it is, basically. Yeah. Anything else on Shape of Water before we move on? Yeah, I mean you should watch it. <laughs> I mean yeah, a, a a strong movie that you know nobody would say is the best movie of 2017, but a fine movie nevertheless. Our next movie is Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro's uh, version of cashing uh, his like directorial blank check after the, after the, I would say, significant success of Hellboy. Uh, his first English language, no, not his first, his most successful English language movie. His his career is pretty interesting as far as like the arcs and the and the ups and the downs of it, but. Uh, pretty universally recognized as the best thing he's ever done. Uh, also nominated for an Oscar in the Best Foreign Language Movie, um, but did not win. I don't have what it lost to in front of me. It is set post-Spanish Civil War. The fascists have won, but there are still pockets of resistance. And within that environment, a young girl whose mom is married to a ruthless uh, fascist captain uh, imagines herself to be in a in her own fairy tale, and like the the lines between what's real and what isn't blur. And there's all again a lot of insanely good creature design. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Initial thoughts, Jr. That's a good movie. Uh, very good movie. Sorry, that's uh that don't want to downplay that. This is a very good movie. Again much better in my opinion on the first watch because like i said you don't know what's going going down pretty straightforward movie you know some kind of fairy tale people and horrible people living around and doing things and i mean once you see that you've seen it so it's it's not you're not gonna in my opinion 
you're not going to enjoy it as much a second time around. But it's definitely a very good movie. Solid A movie, in my opinion. Uh, don't know if I would say it's... it's Yeah, it's his best movie. I don't know if I would say it's my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie, though. I think my favorite that I just would continually rewatch may be Pacific Rim. I mean, that's yeah, that's a fun movie. It's yeah. just like that's <laughs> it, it. It could also use some quality control. Yeah, but, it's, uh, yeah. Fun it's just straight fun. Though. That's you know, you're just like yeah. watching a movie of this dude fi- of people fighting giant, giant Rope things Rope. fighting other giant things. Yeah, what what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I'll I'll let. What are your initial thoughts? Sorry. Uh, I mean to like do a quick sidebar on best versus favorite. I do like, this is my highest rated uh, Guillermo del Toro movie. I think I, I do think I need to watch Hellboy two again. That came out like a week before the dark Knight in 2008 and got completely just like wiped off the, the landscape at the time. I remember, um, I remember that time sneaking out of work to go watch movies uh, I was a great quality control analyst and continue and continue to be. Uh, but I, fe- I feel like that one might be my might be my favorite. There's just so much cool shit in, in Hellboy. I feel Hellboy like I 2 it. is the Golden Army one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he like becomes the the dude or is that the first one? Uh, there's it's, it's with like the it's with the um yeah, like the gold, the golden army, a bunch of robots, and he fights a plant monster, and the, there's like a, a representation of death that has a lot in common with the pale man from Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, there, there's, there's okay, yeah, all kinds of shit. There's all kinds of shit, man. Yep, yep. In uh, Hellboy two, far more than Hellboy one, which I honestly barely remember. Uh, but who knows? Maybe that one uh, gets raised on estimation also. Uh, but as far as as far as, as far as Pan's Labyrinth is concerned, uh, this is an original story by Del Toro, uh, and, Do- and Del Toro alone. He doesn't have a co-writer on this. I did kind of think maybe this was pulled from uh, some kind of uh, like fiction novel or earlier story, but no, not a, no. It's a it's an original story. Although he does pull ideas for some of the monsters, specifically the Pale Man from like Japanese, like manga kind of stuff. Uh, he's Mexican. Un- I couldn't find out if his parents emigrated to Mexico from Spain. I don't think that the timeline doesn't exactly work out. He was born in 1864. Um, but he he is certainly interested in the Spanish Civil War. Um, I, I, again, I just, I couldn't find out if he has any personal connection based on like the you know like the I, not not extensive research I did uh I don't know I don't know enough about that that not unlike Hellboy 2 it just totally gets overshadowed by what happened you know in like the immediate aftermath like a dress rehearsal for uh World War 2 is how it is how, is like the shorthand of the Spanish Civil War um do I I think I have a book on my shelf about it that I haven't read yet anyways I'm in, I mean, I would be, I'm, I'm interested in that period of history. Um, as again, I feel like I've said this two podcasts in a row as all middle-aged men eventually must be. Uh, 
uh, and I and this is probably the most well known movie that's been made about it. Uh, he his uh, Del Toro made The Devil's Backbone before uh, Hellboy and Blade Two, which is um, not a movie I've seen, but it's also about the Spanish Civil War. Uh, have you seen that, Jr.? I have not. Okay. I bought the Criterion Del Toro uh, set, and it's in there. I just haven't watched it yet. Along with Kronos, his like first uh, independent movie. I haven't seen Mimic or Kronos. I haven't seen those first three. I, uh, Mimic, I mean, uh, the story of that, as far as Del Toro is concerned, is that like he just had no control over it, and like the studio took it all over. So like maybe he has his influence can be found in like. I don't even know what Mimic is about, like cockroaches that take the shape of humans, maybe. I don't have any idea, really. But I, I would watch that because it's him. But I don't think he he, that it, he talks about it as being a terrible experience. Uh, but yeah, we, we haven't seen everything that Del Toro has done. But uh, returning to the Spanish Civil War, uh, a, a period of history that he's interested in. Uh, the thing... I remember watching Pan's Labyrinth for the first time and being shocked at that part of it, like the, the like the the wartime uh, hyper realism, uh, realism, not hyper realism in one corner of Pan's Labyrinth. And then the stuff that you know about it, like through uh, like posters and that kind of stuff with the fantasy and like the creature design and the fairies. And the fawn again portrayed by Doug Jones, uh, although his voice is dubbed, he couldn't get the Spanish uh, the the Spanish accent correct. Uh, the giant frog that turns into like a pile of orange goo, and the mandrake root, which we'll talk about, and then of course the pale man, which is just like an iconic creature that like The Simpsons has done, and like Bob's Burgers recently made reference to the pale man like 15 years later. Uh, like, it's just an image that has and will, like, just last as far as as long as people are talking about, uh, like, weird shit that happens in movies. It's just like this perfect nightmare creature that, again, like I mentioned, like, pulled, like, the bones of which are pulled from some some kind of manga or some kind of Japanese legend. But as represented here, uh, it's just like this fantastic representation of of. Guillermo del, uh, 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 del Toro, like just pure nightmare, and that is absolutely the thing that has stuck with me. Um, you know, in the handful of times I've watched Pan's Labyrinth, this is just a general overall. Is you're never really like at the end of the movie, like that was fucking a great movie. You're like those creatures that he had, like wherever he thought of these dudes, that that was awesome. I think, and that that might be the downfall of him to try to make a great movie is he put so much effort into the creatures and the thing, the, the things. Mm-hmm. So then there's less thought on the actual story. It's like how you feel about uh Stanley Kubrick. You know, you're like this dude spent so much time making sure every shot is perfect that you think his stories fell. Yeah. He lost. The way tra- like, any kind of emotional pull in the movie. Yeah. Yep, and I think that might be one of the one of the problems with Del Toro too. Mm-hmm. Is he just he I mean, he this guy loves his creatures. He's like I can imagine he like writes a 
writes a story and he's like he either writes a story and then is like but the creatures that seems less likely than he thinks of some creatures and he's like how do i put these guys into a story yeah it's tom cruise writing a mission impossible movie with christopher McQuarrie. like what kind of stunts do i want to do and we're going to make the movie from there <laughs> yeah yeah i Which mean it w- works when you're just like making a mission impossible movie where the whole point is you just want to see crazy stunts mm-hmm. but it doesn't really work when a lot a lot of like the point he's he wants to make great movies that have some emotional story in it, but he's thinking about creatures more, more than the, than the emotional story. Yeah, yeah. There's this documentary about H.R. Uh, Giger, like the 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 guy, who, like the artist who uh, invented the alien in the Alien movies, and the documentary is just like him in his last year of his life and he spends a lot of time in his house and his house looks exactly as creepy as you would expect it to <laughs> be. like he's like a he's like a german visual artist who invented like the the alien <laughs> and his and his home is just like covered in that kind of like biomechanical stuff with his his crazy drawings on the wall i kind of imagine del toro living in a not dissimilar place where he sits in a chair where where it is the pale man. Like the chair is the pale man and his arms are like out to the side as like the armrests. Oh yeah. Like none of that would surprise me at all. We talked about how, you know, you can interpret the ending of the shape of water in potentially several ways. Uh not dissimilar to how Pan's Labyrinth shakes out. Uh the version of the story that I like best and that distinguishes and that separates this movie from being in from, from my money, like the full a, I gave this movie an a minus, uh, you know, the imaginative little girl who loves stories and loves to create fantasies and loves to tell stories to her mother and her unborn brother, et cetera, et cetera, uh, lives in this stress, stressful world. And she creates an actual magical world, uh, to, to make the cruel world that she lives in make more sense. Uh, she's told in her real world that she's not particularly useful as both a child and as a girl. She'll, you know, end up cranking out sons for uh, unappreciative men, not unlike her mom. So uh, she creates this fantasy world where not only is she valued, but she's the most valuable thing that any that the king and the most important people in this alternative world are even looking for. That's all great. The movie ends, you know, with her like ble- the movie begins with her bleeding out, and then flashes back to like you know the how did she get there, which you know in media res type stuff, not a huge fan of. It's not the worst thing in the world here. That all works. It all works, including like the actual ending once they get to it. It's like she's imagining this as she is dying, uh, and the fantasy world doesn't impact the real world in those final moments. The only complicating factor is the Mandrake route. Which is like given to her as something to help her mom's pregnancy go smoother. It seems to be working until uh, her mom finds it and on Captain Vidal, the, the bad guy, the villain's orders, throws it into the fire and she immediately like faints or has a seizure or starts bleeding or whatever. Uh, and while it's in the fire, the mandrake root like squeals and wiggles and cries and is in pain, like to be being burned alive. 
I just don't, I, I really don't like that. I don't like that. It's unnecessary complication. Your movie makes perfect sense without it. And all you're doing is muddying the waters at that point. Does that so, bother you as much as it bothers me? It does not bother me. I, because I'm watching this movie and it exists where all of this is actually happening. Were you saying that you don't like that part because it's not the girl interacting with the Mandrake root? It's like it's the, the Mandrake root is interacting with the real world. Right. Okay. That's what the, yeah. So like if the girl threw it in there and she saw it withering and whatever. And it's just burning like a Mandrake root in the real world would burn. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if in the real world she saw it withering. But nobody else sees it withering or whatever. When she, yeah, yeah, it's just like if that it happens, it can only be the girl that sees it happening. Sure, and yeah. but for it then to have an effect, like for her mom, once the mandrake root dies, to immediately, uh, like for her pregnancy to immediately go badly, and for her to die immediately after. Uh, yeah. I think that's the move. The movie is putting its thumb on the scale and saying, yes, she was being kept alive by this thing. And now yeah. that she's dead. I, I, that's how I read the whole thing. I mm -hmm. read this as this exists in a world where all this stuff is happening. Cause that's how all of Guillermo del Toro's movies exist. Right. That's what mm -hmm. you're saying. So it, was, it wasn't, it's, I see where you're coming from, but just, I was in there like, yeah, whatever. Like that's what happens here. It's the same thing as with The Shape of Water, where I just prefer the version of the movie that has wonder in it, but not actual magic. Wonder, yeah. fine. Magic, bad. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. But yeah, that's that's what keeps it from getting the full A and prevents this movie from being as good as it possibly could have been. For, for my money, it doesn't seem like it bothered you, and you know, that's fine. Um, Gail Melodoro's Fascist Bad Guys Part 2. Uh, different take on Captain Vidal. Uh, he, his function here is, and you see this in like the dinner scene that they have together with like the church leaders and the wealthy families from the area. Uh, he, his role is to like prop up these conservative institutions uh, in service to the state. Like all of these repressive things like religion can serve the state and uh, capitalism and exploitation can serve the state, but the state is the most important thing. And like it, it allows you to operate. It can change its mind at any moment, but the people that are making sure that that happens are people like Vidal, who has this like supreme, this really scary supreme power over not just life and death, but like history and posterity. Like. Uh, something that I think Pan's Labyrinth like taps into is like a murderous regime like this, fascist or not, like kind of the most terrifying thing about it is its ability to, to just kill someone, whoever it is, and make no memorial to them. You don't inform the family. They're just gone. And no, no one's going to do anything about it. No one's going to send flowers to your door. There's not going to be a grave site even. You're, they're just going to remove you from history. And there's just nothing to be done. They just do it because they feel like it. 
if the person like disobeyed the rules of the world or not. It doesn't matter. They can just remove you from the world. These like authoritarian regimes where like that's the it, it it can it just has monopolized power in such a way that everybody is made vulnerable and it's uh, frankly terrifying. <laughs> Uh, and then, like we were talking about in Pan's Labyrinth, where he's like this anti, or in uh, Shape of Water as well. Uh, we kind of touched on this, but he, he's, if if Ophelia, the main character, is this like person who loves stories, then, you know, like Vidal is in opposition to her. He's an anti-storyteller. Uh, he would have no, he has no patience for superstitions like the Mandrake Root. Uh, the Labyrinth is just something that's in the way like why haven't they knocked it down yet it's not serving any purpose uh no one can be the like the 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 old saw is that you know everyone's the main character in their own story but that's impossible under fascism like the state is the main character and everybody then like the individual doesn't matter anymore uh there's just all these like i think clever little ways that builds out del toro's vision of what like fascism is I think it it's just it's really easy to just distill it into like um good guys and bad guys like uh a fascist mindset just making the world extremely simple but I don't know there's so much there's so much that has to go wrong in like a human brain to even sign on to that kind of simplicity and I do think Del Toro is pretty compellingly interested in how a person gets there and like through Vidal, you see also that it's impossible. Like he tells, he has his own story that he tells himself about his family, like with the watch and the time of death and all of that stuff. And like he's begging at the end of the movie to like tell my son what my name is, tell him about me, and like the rebels give his philosophy back to him, where they're going to erase him from history. And like it's a really cold ending that is appropriate for that character, but cold nonetheless. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't really have a lot to say about this movie, even though I'm, I did watch this one, but it's it's uh, for me, it's just like it's just very like the bad guy just exists to die. Hmm. Like I hear you saying all of this, and I understand it, and maybe I need to rewatch this movie. But I'm like when I'm watching this movie, I'm. The only thing, like, I'm just not interested in this bad guy. And I, don't, I, I don't know why. I have no interest in him at all. He's just there. He's dining. He's being a dick to the, the little girl's wife, mom, his new wife. And, you know, like, the only thing that really sticks out to me is the zoom shot on his face where he's like, save, save my kid. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the rest of it is he gets cut and then runs away and then then dies and i'm like okay i'm i'm way just more interested in everything the girl's doing which may be what what it's supposed to happening but i may be just like way more over interested than what i'm supposed to be mm-hmm. yeah i mean like I hear what you're saying, definitely. Like, the easiest bad guy in the world to make is is a Nazi. And, like, these guys are Nazi-adjacent. Uh, but, I don't know, like, that was... I don't know, I talk about... I talk about, like, the the reading 
or like the nonfiction historical reading that I did, like the period when I was just uh, from, I don't know, like late 2018 to 2019, when I was just reading like books about the Gulag and uh, the Eastern Front during World War II and uh, the Holocaust. And I, 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 like those were all real people on both sides, you like did real things. And I, I, there's just so much that goes into, you know, getting to that point where you just think nothing of like bashing in a, a potential witness, not even like someone who's actually doing anything bad, like just bashing their brains in with like a wine bottle. Uh, yeah, it's a process. It's a process to get there. And like, I find that process so, so fascinating. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Like what, but it's it's more in the context of the movie. Sure. So, yes, it's very interesting that whole thing that you're saying. Yeah, and like those kind of movies are. That's not something you're gonna get from ninety nine percent of movies. Like a movie that's going to take the effort to uh, be from the Nazis' point of view or the fascist point of view. Who's yeah. really gonna want to watch that? <laughs> Which yep. is fair. I, I mean, I totally understand that. It is a business, in a way. Uh, and that's not what Pan's Labyrinth is, by any means. Pan's Labyrinth, you're you're right. Like, it, it is a vehicle for the fantasy part of it. But, like, the bare-bones historical part of it, uh, especially, like, contrasted with how little I know, really, about the Spanish Civil War, and it being, like, an, a part of history I'd like to know more about, Um There's a lot there, too. And I think that is what elevates Pan's Labyrinth above something like Hellboy 2 or or The Shape of Water or, like, the other, like, uh, famous Del Toro creature features. Uh, Like, this is the movie that has both. It has, has like, the historical grounding alongside the the fantasy craziness. Uh, Anything else on Pan's Labyrinth? No, sir. All right, I think we got it. Uh, our final movie is uh, Pinocchio. This one uh, is the Netflix version. I think uh, Robert Zemeckis uh, did a Disney version of Pinocchio that was roundly panned as yet another monument to his complete failure as a director in the 21st century. Uh, the Polar Express was on at my parents' house during Christmas Eve dinner, and I had, I mean, I've never watched that movie. You soak in the culture, you know, as far as knowing that it is one of like these early, like uncanny Valley, like CGI experiments that didn't really go very well, but I don't know. People are still watching it, I guess. Uh, It, I I didn't sit down and watch the whole movie because it was physically impossible for me to do so. That movie inflict, like that movie hurt me (laughs) just to be in the same room as it. Uh, I would never, I would never, I would never like sit down and watch that movie as like a curiosity as like a, what the fuck went wrong here. Uh, Robert Zemeckis has just totally be clowned himself. And that must have been when that whole process started. Guillermo del Toro not has not be clowned himself in the same way. Uh, this version That's of not the, the only Pinocchio that came out. Oh yeah. There was another one. There was like a Russian one starring Polly Shore. Yeah, the Polly Shore one. Okay, I know this thanks to Honest Trailers. I would that would not have trickled down. 
Yeah. <laughs> Pinocchio, time. a true story, came out in February <laughs> this year. Awesome. Yeah, anything Pauly Shore does, you know, I'm first in line at the movie theater, but sadly that movie, I guess, didn't play in theaters. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? I don't even think it went straight to, like, real streaming. It went, like, straight to, like, Pluto TV. Yeah, it's keeping the troops warm in uh, the Russian troops warm in Ukraine. (laughs) (laughs) The antics of Polly Shore is Pinocchio. Uh, This version is stop motion animated. By far the most charming version of animation. Uh, Slightly above hand drawn and then CGI further down, which I believe those are the two movies. Wait, was was the Polly Shore one live action? No. Okay. It was what, like CGI one. if I made it. Like, I've never done any CGI before. <laughs> okay, yeah. The Zemeckis one is like, I guess you would call it proper CGI. Uh, although I'm sure it still looks like shit. Ugh. Uh, Pinocchio, again, Del Toro's version. Stop motion. Very charming. Love stop motion. Supposedly, this one adheres the closest to the original Italian, I think, Italian story. Of Pinocchio, written by a guy whose name I don't have in front of me, and had honestly never heard before. Uh, I did some rudimentary reading about the backstory of this movie. Um, released on Netflix after a brief run in theaters, uh, Geppetto as a widower and uh, the son of a or the father of a dead son who was killed in like an accidental bombing during World War One or whatever, uh, and he makes uh, a puppet out of uh, frustrated grief sometime later and the puppet is brought to life by the fairies and the wood sprites and the and the whatever magical beings that exist in this world and uh, he's immortal and he dies a lot and etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, JR initial thoughts on Pinocchio uh, yeah it was good it was uh, well let me say this it was good it was a good movie like technically and everything Mm-hmm. I just didn't enjoy it. It was draining to me. I don't know if they could have done anything about it. It just felt maybe it had to do with the fact that it felt like Kubo and the Two Strings to me a little bit. And uh, so it just like the whole time I was watching it, I was kind of like, like, why, why, what's the point of this movie? Why does this movie exist? Like, I get it, you know. Now that you just said that it's a different version of Pinocchio from some Italian tales or whatever, but still to me, it just, it was like, did this really need to be made? Yeah, you made a good movie, but like, okay, like, I I guess, what what are we getting out of this? Uh, like, I, I don't know. There's a, I got a lot of complaints about this. I mean, like, why throw in the fascists? Like, what's the fascist need for this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is the least needs a fascist movie of the three. I, uh, I, that, that, that bafflement, I think, is pretty much where I am. Uh, pretty, like, a solid voice cast. Again, praise for stop motion animation. But just, like, totally cold. Totally cold from this movie. That is, that is, clearly trying for the opposite of that. Uh, this movie is going for, like, big emotional swings. It is going for, like, Pixar-level crying in certain spots. Uh, I just uh, could not connect with it on that level. 
the story like we'll we'll talk about where all the all the uh, all the gaps are potentially but i mean this exists because this has been like a passion project for del toro for a very long time uh he he brought in good people to like help him with the story like specifically this guy patrick McHale, who uh worked on adventure time like a personal favorite cartoon of mine uh, for the whole for the whole family and uh, as well and he and he's also the creator and the primary influence behind Over the Garden Wall, which is a uh, Cartoon Network uh, miniseries that is also like extremely well regarded uh, for a lot of the same reasons that Adventure Time is like this combination of like sadness and wonder and uh, a, a real throwback to the kind of stuff that del toro was interested in like a like dark fairy tale kind of stuff so that's like a really strong creative combination with del toro who has like the the weight and the and the and the power to get this kind of thing made with netflix although it doesn't seem like it's that hard to get netflix to throw that much money at you that may be changing but you know when this was agreed to have been made it hadn't that hadn't changed yet uh but yeah, just there's something lacking in the execution. I don't know what it is exactly. Uh, I've been this is as long as I've ever put off writing a main review <laughs> for uh, MediaCommovie.club. I've been sitting on a Pinocchio review for maybe like two weeks now. I just cannot get motivated to write about this movie. I just something about it, which you know is automatically you know against the movie's favor. But there's something about it that is just giving me total a total block about writing about this movie. I just need to churn out like three paragraphs and get it over with. But yeah, this is a movie that exists, I guess I would say. Yeah. Which is depressing. Which is depressing. It it just felt like everything it was trying to do didn't work. Like, for instance, the whole you have in here about like the poorly defined rules, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's like waiting in limbo. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just like, why? Like there was not even every time he went into limbo, they were like they were trying to have like some like true deep conversation possibly about what. And it's like none of those hit. Yeah, like the jump ahead to that, like this is an ex- this is a very magical version of this story, like even more so than like the Disney versions, where. Like we said, like the Pinocchio puppet is brought to life by like just this floating blue spirit in the forest that takes residence in him because like not for any real reason or anything. It's just got to land somewhere. And then you find out that he can't that he can die in the world. But when he dies, he goes to this to 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 this like spiritual place guarded over by like a like a Sphinx style blue spirit voiced by Tilda Swinton and he can't go back until an hourglass runs out except that every time he dies the hourglass gets bigger and bigger and he has to take longer and longer that is a pretty cool mechanic and that gives you a lot of room for both humor and like an interstellar style time is passing at a rate that doesn't that doesn't align with how I'm that how I'm experiencing time. Like this is like this character Pinocchio as envisioned in this movie is like a really playful 
little little kid and uh he's mischievous and there's like a really good line reading by the voice actor after he only he only dies twice he dies twice in this movie and the second time he dies he like pops up in the, in this limbo world and he's like i can't die and the way he says it is this combination of confidence and the kind of power that like a 10 year old kid would imagine themselves having. And it implies that the movie is going to start to get like darkly funny in a way that he's just going to keep dying over and over again as he like tries to experiment with his limits. Yeah. You think he's going to go back and like start doing drugs. Yeah. it's, It's fun to be reckless and he doesn't seem to have much conception of how long he has to stay in limbo. Therefore, go be a daredevil. That, but the movie doesn't do that at all. <laughs> and it just, it totally miss it totally whiffs on this opportunity uh, for him to like, you know, die for the 12th time. And then all of a sudden he comes back and like, maybe his uh, fascist training camp friend is now an adult. <laughs> uh, with all the time that's gone by or yeah. maybe Geppetto can't get around anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but they don't do any of that uh, by the time he's died the second time by the time he's died the third time the rule is that he can go back faster but he loses his ability and that's what he does although how much time is really going by by the time the third hourglass has been flipped it seems like it's the difference between like two minutes and five minutes right yes and he decides to skip to not to wait that five minutes yeah like and save geppetto exactly die in this climactic moment the difference is a minute versus like 15 seconds and that's just the stakes are completely fucked i think in this in this specific way my so, other question around this is after he saves Geppetto, dies, Jiminy Cricket or whatever the guy's 100%, name is, brings 100%. him back. Too much. He can die again, but then the whole clock thing happens again because he's not mortal. But then he, if he really wanted to, he could just go back, break the clock again. Like everything that just happened is, is done again. Mm-hmm. It's because, just it's too much. There's been the one big sacrifice. Yeah. There doesn't need to be another one. It's a hat on a hat. Like this dude saved Geppetto. Unclear how that happened exactly, because the last we see of that is him failing to pull as a puppet to pull a grown man out of the water. He's yeah. failing to do it, and then they cut to them on the beach. So again, it just seems like something is missing. It, not only that even in the first place after that point also like we're really nitpicking here but like the movie invites us any fantasy movie when they establish weird rules for their world that's fine but if you went to the trouble of laying them out you gotta stick to them and, and yeah it's unclear why he even drowns in the first place like does he breathe <laughs> why is geppetto drowning Geppetto drowning makes sense. Like, he's falling... Th- I can't remember exactly what happens there. I don't know. Does he bonk his head or something as he's... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't even remember what happens to him that all of a sudden he's like, I am unable to swim. 
Like, yeah. I, I don't remember. That's why yeah. I was I was asking like a legit question. This wasn't like I can't a, remember. I I yeah. didn't I didn't watch this when it was on. I watched this in theaters in like mid November, I think. Oh, okay. So it's been a little bit. I don't remember those specifics, but I do remember watching that being like, I can't feel anything about this because I don't understand what's geographically linearly happening, how much time is going by. There's just too many questions for me to give a shit about this obvious pitch for an emotional moment. And it just totally fails. And then the movie just ends. Yeah. I I literally at no point in this movie gave a shit about Pinocchio. Yeah, because it tells you that there are no stakes to his life. He's coming back. And <laughs> and the fun of coming like you said, the fun of a dude coming back over and over is we want we want to see him live debaucherously. And yeah. come back over and over. He's like, like it's a, uh, oh man, damn it. There's a movie where the guy, oh, it's like, it's fucking Edge of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's literally any Groundhog's Day movie. But it's, it, it's like a Edge of Tomorrow where he's trying to figure out how to defeat the people. It's like Pinocchio's doing Edge of Tomorrow, but he's trying to learn how to like, be a normal human maybe is the the option you go with here i don't know i mean what is he what does but del toro i don't think can make a movie where the main thrust of this pinocchio story is like a puppet wants to be a real boy because that kind of arc is like antithetical to someone like him where like that arc is like i'm i'm weird and i want to be normal and Guillermo del Toro would never make a movie like that. So they find a different way into it where Pinocchio doesn't want to be a real boy necessarily, but he wants to be thought of as a real boy by Geppetto, who has, you know, like the sad backstory of him having a dead son. A, a part of the movie that also did not work for me because his son was like perfect. This like little cherubic boy who loves his strangely old father. Uh, in a way that is like just no child that that child doesn't exist. <laughs> I was also very confused at how old Geppetto was supposed to be when yeah. he died because <laughs> he's like sixty and he ages into eighty by the time World War Two is rolling around. Yeah, like I'm like, is this supposed to be a dude who just who's thirty five and just looks fucking sixty, or is this <laughs> actually a sixty five year old man who? plants a tree we watch this tree this tree's gotta it's gotta be they forgot about this dude right so it's like mm-hmm. this has got to be like you said 20 years down the line 15 20 years and you're like okay this man is now 90 years old you know 80 years old like you said you're like, what the what the hell is going on here and now he's just like running around to find a wooden motherfucker like make another wooden kid bro you obviously have some weird powers to where you make a wooden kid and it turns into fucking a person. Make another yeah. wooden kid. That's the kind of like stuff that's lost in the potential time gaps where like Pinocchio's dead and he's been dead for a long it's like the tenth time, so the hourglass is really running this time. And in the meantime, Geppetto has made like two more puppets <laughs> that have somehow <laughs> been in habit. I don't know. I'm not a writer. But it just doesn't seem like the movie did really much of anything with its premise. It's getting very high, like, 
very it good. really is yeah i follow del toro on twitter and he is like retweeting every like rave review that he's getting and like it's totally possible that this movie like wins the best animated oscar this year uh pixar crapped the bed with light year but maybe like turning red will get in there uh puss in boots is, is shockingly great shockingly great <laughs> light year was pretty good i mean it's not like just a, movie, the, that's, a movie that slides off your brain. Just a nothing movie that does not justify its existence in any way. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's not what you expect from Pixar, but it's like Cars 3 level type shit. Or whatever. Yeah, that is that is uh, the opposite of high praise. <laughs> Cars 3 uh, is the best one. I don't know. But yeah, they didn't. I don't think. I don't. I don't know what else Disney released this year, but it it it's, it seems totally possible that this will win like the best animated Oscar. It really seems like it's working for people. It 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 just is not working for. It's like it's it's it feels completely half baked. Uh, there is there's a gag in here that I that completely turned me off. Uh, Pinocchio. Uh, per like the you know like the origins of the story, he gets he gets pulled into a circus. He performs for one of the three or four bad guys in the movie, and uh, Mussolini shows up for a performance. He's uh, super excited. The show has been uh, patriotic. I don't know if World War II has started yet, but whatever. I mean, Mussolini took control in like the early twenties. Uh, Mussolini shows up and. Pinocchio has been convinced to like sing an insulting song about poop and farts. And he's immediately executed and the circus is burned to the ground. <laughs> kind of a funny joke because it cuts immediately because that's when it cuts to Pinocchio saying, I can't die. But what really happened back in the world is that all the circus performers were probably murdered. And if not murdered, then like made homeless because they're part of a traveling circus. But the 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 movie treats this as like a huge victory, like a moral victory, where uh, the main character got to tell an evil leader that he smells his own farts or whatever the song is about. Like the song is, I'm, I'm dismissing the song on like a puerile level, but I mean like it's appropriately written by like a ten year old character, so that's all fine. But it just, I think, is indicative of how like deeply unserious this movie is. Because, congratulations, you made fun of a, a guy who is essentially a god in Italian society right now, who can do whatever the fuck he wants, and no one's gonna say no. So, congratulations on your joke. You just fucked up a lot of people's lives who weren't doing anything wrong. Like we reviewed the Great Dictator. A long time ago, a movie that I also really didn't like because what value is it to make fun of a leader while they're at their point of greatest power? Your little jokes are going to have zero impact except for to make you feel like you're doing something when you're doing not a fucking thing. And like, yeah, that was Charlie Chaplin, like pretending he struck a blow for freedom when in like actuality, Hitler watched The Great Dictator like three or four times and thought it was funny. So this I find to be in the exact same vein. Like Del Toro was like striking a blow against fascism in a period of like rising fascist attitudes. 
all you did was like throw a, a piece of shit at Mussolini that didn't even land on him, and then he murdered you. And then he leaves the movie. There's no more comeuppance for Mussolini. I just I I I hated that part of this movie. I I was really thrown off when he just started beating the the dude, the ringmaster, just started beating the shit out of the monkey. Mm-hmm. The monkey voiced by Kate Blanchett, strangely enough. Would not have known that without Okay. Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> well, I was just like what like this is the sh- like what are we doing? We're showing that Pinocchio's willing to step in front of this guy and throw him off? Or is this to show that this dude is really bad? Like we know this guy's bad. It's like if it's like if Pan's Labyrinth was rated like PG, where it just it just has no ability to actually show what's happening. Cuts away from the circus as it's being burned down and like looted and pillaged and destroyed. Uh, they can't spend any time really in the fascist training camp that Pinocchio spends, we'll say, 15 minutes in, because this movie is just not equipped to do that. Like Jojo Rabbit, a movie that I also was, that I also thought was just like plagued by half measures. That movie was harder than this one, uh, because this one just can't be. It's impossible. So like if you can't commit to your premise of what if Pinocchio but in fascist Italy, then just don't do it. Like if you can't, there's just, I just don't feel like there's any value in pulling your punches in this way. Like the fascist training, as far as these kids are concerned, they like have a paintball battle. Why, why, why do that? Why do that? I'm really talking myself down on this movie, which I started at like a B minus and I'm, I'm heading towards a C on a review that again, I have not written at the time of recording. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even rate that. I so I watched it, and then who? Uh, my girlfriend, she was like, "What'd you think of the movie?" And I was just like, "Yeah, like, yeah." I didn't really enjoy it, and she was like, "Like why?" And I was like, "It it was just nothing, really." Yeah, like it just it was nothing, and it just like I I didn't enjoy watching this movie. Yeah, like. Uh, Jiminy Cricket, who they can't call Jiminy Cricket, probably because of some kind of Disney licensing, so they have to call him Sebastian the Cricket, and his middle initial is J. Uh, like, his big speech at the end to the Tilda Swinton Sphinx character to, like, allow her to bring Pinocchio back to life. And again, like, setting aside that this is a character making a speech to end a movie uh, and, like, plead plead their case, another bullshit trope that I don't like. Uh, his argument is is ultimately like like he gives up mid argument like oh I don't know just let me do this just do this thing don't be a jerk just do this thing we tried so hard and then everybody gets what they fucking wants <laughs> yeah he's like why I might have sucked think... dick in the one thing you asked me to do yeah why didn't anybody think to go up to Mussolini and like oh gosh why are you doing this man you're not being cool why don't you just let us do this thing. Because, like, as far as the movie is concerned, Mussolini essentially is the Sphinx character. Like, they have the power of life and death over people. And they're making, like, this desperate plea to the Sphinx, who is made up. And meanwhile, like, the real, the real entity that has this 
ungodly power is just like this, you know, figure of fun. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm really talking myself down on this movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's somebody, it just, yeah, to me, it just felt very Kubo. And not. How do you mean, how do you mean that? I don't know, just like everything that was happening, like. The the Sphinx felt like a character in Kubo. I, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just watching it, and I'm like, this feels like I'm watching Kubo and the Two Strings. I don't mm-hmm. know what, what it was. It was the, maybe when he kept dying and it went to the dark place, and that felt Kubo-y. But it was just like, I just was like, I want to watch Kubo and the Two Strings again. <laughs> okay, because, yeah, I, I, I kind of thought you were heading in a, like, a critical place. Whereas like this and Kubo and the Two Strings left you equally cold, and oh, that, that absolutely that, not. Okay, that great. Was, that might have been my favorite movie that came out in 2017 or whenever it came out. 16, yeah, sixteen. Yeah, uh, I okay. fucking love Kubo. That would have been a different Strings. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not at um, all. It was just we both agree that that's a great movie. That's a great yeah. stop animation movie. It was uh, just like that. Maybe it was stop motion with the like spiritual thing, and you yeah, know, I was just like, I was like. Uh, and it definitely the Sphinx person somehow definitely got me there. But I just remember several, several times throughout this movie. I was just like, getting that feeling. I should watch Kubo again. It's probably yeah. been, it's been a year or two. I should. They don't look dissimilar, like color, color wise. They're both like brown, a lot of brown. Yeah. Both movies, a lot of wood. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the second time you've said that. And like, we're talking about a movie we both feel no. negative to nothing about in comparison with a movie that I'm pretty sure people agree is awesome. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely love Kubo and the Two Strings. Yeah. Skip Pinocchio. Go watch Kubo and the Two Strings or anything from Leica, which is, you know, like the premier stop motion animation studio. Uh, your Coralines, your Paranormans, your Box Trolls, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Which they mention. I think Guillermo del Toro said was like part of his like like one of the people he brought on to design it like designed box trolls. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's got to be a small world, the stop motion animation. That, yeah, that's like, true. It's so I labor mean, intensive that like the same people work on the same on the same movies, or like Isle of Dogs, like that kind. That I, I yeah. think I read something about like yeah, that kind of like inter interbreeding between that movie and this one. But yeah, none of that surprises me. Skip Pinocchio. Uh, if it wins, yeah. Oscar, I'll be I'll be baffled. Like, I good also, for Toro, I guess I don't dislike Del. This hasn't like turned me around on Del Toro or anything, but just like I don't know, man. If this is what you were trying to make for fourteen years, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> Would you spend this all that can't time? be your magnum opus, bro. Like this can't no. be the thing you were like. It took me twenty five years to get this made. Like freaking. You know, Avatar. At least yeah. in Avatar, where he's like, I wanted to make Avatar in 1992, but I couldn't make it until 2009. He's like, I literally couldn't make it. The technology was not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's fair. But like, you had to wait that long to get the technology. But here he's like, nobody would let me make this Pinocchio movie. It's like, I see why, bro. I see why. <laughs> Maybe they were right. And. <laughs> Yeah, we're ending on a down note for Del Toro, but, uh, you know, I'll certainly watch the next thing he does. This 
this might be the worst thing I've seen from him. I also want no, to say no that else would be. I don't hate this movie. I've, I'm, I'm going down like a full grade as I'm which, speaking. Which is fine, but you're not like saying this is like a D minus movie. I'm oh, no, saying no. this is a movie that I'll, if anyone was like, should I watch this? I'd be like, Ish. yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> if if someone told me they liked it, I'd be like, okay. If they told me they didn't like it, I like, I have no feelings towards this movie at all. Like, the you know, it's yeah, not I mean, a... My God, you didn't like that movie? What's wrong with you? Or like, no, my no. God, you love that movie? What's wrong with you? I'm like, this movie exists in the world to me, and I don't. I personally think Guillermo del Toro should have spent time making a different, a, another movie. But it's like, you know, you, he, this is what he wanted to do, and he made a movie that's not terrible. It's not good. It exists. It's like a C plus movie for me, maybe. Yeah, I'm I'm dipping below that level. And like, as far as even like recommending it for like families or children, uh, I I kind of hate what it's about so much and how frivolous it is in a very unfrivolous time within the movie that I don't think I would recommend it for the same reason I wouldn't tell like a kid or a, or a parent to like, oh yeah, you could show your kids the Transformers movies. Like, well, no, I completely disagree with like the ethics and the values of those movies. So I would never tell a child to watch them. I kind of am on the same level with Pinocchio, which is just really shocking and surprising. I just, I don't like the values of this movie and and how it treats what it's about. So I'm kind of like in an anti-recommendation spot, which again push is pushing me lo- even lower. But... <laughs> Yeah, that's the end of our Guillermo del Toro trio. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'll talk about Hellboy or Crimson Peak at some point in the future, but I can't imagine that cropping up anytime soon. Overlooked superhero movies, maybe? I don't know. That's a theme. Uh, our next Hellboy? Theme, yeah, that'd be sure, good. Sure, yeah. I don't think we need to talk about Crimson Peak. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, our next trio, uh, yet to be decided, but it's going to be uh, 2022 movies. Uh, potential Oscar stuff, maybe. Um, I don't know when I'll be editing this exactly, but like that'll be. We'll be discussing our next round uh, around the time that like uh, Golden Globes are happening and Oscar nominations coming out. So that's probably what we're going to be talking about is is like uh, the big, the big critical awards darling type movies. Um, Banshees of Inisherin is on HBO. It, it's easy to imagine that that. Um, rising up the ranked choice voting that we do to decide what we watch. Uh, but who knows? Uh, that'll be in the immediate future. And uh, we've also released episodes uh, or, or or we'll soon be releasing episodes about uh, the sight and sound list that was released in uh, November and uh, some of our best of 2022 opinions on uh, movies, on TV, probably also maybe, in, maybe even video games. Uh, in the meantime... Uh, you can read our reviews for these three movies and many, many others. Uh, for example, I just hosted a review of Elvis, a movie that was one of my biggest surprises for the year as far as a movie that I did not expect to like at all, if not outright hate and liked quite a bit. Uh, recommend Elvis. Don't watch Pinocchio. Watch Elvis, strangely enough. Uh would never have guessed that at the start of the year. The Boslerman movie is going to be better than the Guillermo del Toro movie. 
that that Elvis review is on our website, MediaCommovie.club. Like us on Facebook at MediaCommovie Club, Twitter at Media. Follow us on Twitter at MediaCommovieCole and Instagram at MediaCommovie Club. Thank you for joining me tonight, Jr. Yeah, no problem. I'm always glad to join you. All right, but yeah, let's get more of those. Just raw, just straightforward expressions of feeling going in 2023. A pleasure <laughs> to talk with you tonight, as always, and have a good night. You too.